Well, good morning, South Valley Community Church. Today, we kick off our annual Apologetics Month. As many of you know, we dedicate the entire month of August to the issue of apologetics. Apologetics comes from a Greek word, apologia, which deals with the defense of the faith and giving reasons for what we believe. I'm very happy to kick off this month of August with our guest speaker, Dr. Mikhail Del Rosario. He is a professor, an author, and a podcaster. He's host of the YouTube channel, The Apologetics Guy. So please give a warm welcome to Dr. Mikhail Del Rosario. Well, thank you guys so much. It's great to be back here with you. It's actually my third time being here for the Apologetics Month. Uh, last time was 2019, so so good to be back with you guys. I'm always encouraged when I come back to see just how faithful your church has been in terms of equipping you with this kind of training year after year. I do teach apologetics at the Moody Bible Institute in downtown Chicago, and I also host a podcast called The Apologetics Guy Show. And I do that to help Christians be able to better explain their faith with courage and compassion, because you never know when you're going to get hit with a tough challenge to the Bible, a tough challenge to what the Bible says about Jesus. And I'll never forget this one time where a woman came up to me after church, we had a little gathering, and she wanted to raise the question of where we ever got the idea that Jesus is God. And so I had my Bible out on the table as we began to talk, and in the middle of our conversation, she grabs my Bible and goes, according to this, Jesus never claimed to be God. I was stunned. Because some people who go to church every weekend are saying some of the same kinds of things as our skeptical friends. And so she says things like, well, if uh, Jesus really said things like, I and the Father are one, then why don't we see any hint of a divine claim like that in the earlier Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and especially in Mark, because most scholars believe that Mark was the very first Gospel that was written. And these are the kinds of challenges that tend to come up when you see critical scholars who like to try to pit the Gospels against each other. And this is the approach of a famous atheist scholar by the name of Bart Ehrman. I actually had a friend who reached out to me because he read one of Ehrman's books. He had grown up in the church, his parents were in ministry, but then he began to wrestle with doubts about what the Bible says about Jesus and can I really believe what the Bible says about Jesus. And so this kind of approach to the Bible is affecting more and more people in the church today. In fact, just last year, LifeWay Research found that 43%, 43% of evangelical Americans believe this, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 43%. Same stat actually said that, uh, same study said you could raise that up to 53% if you included people who went to church regularly but didn't consider themselves evangelicals. And so it's important that we begin to uh, try to put ourselves in other people's shoes. How do we meet them where they're at? How can we engage even at a historical level? If they say Jesus was a good teacher, how can we help them consider the idea that Jesus was more than a man? Well, in God's providence, he gave us four Gospels, not just one. And in the Gospel of John, we have the story of Jesus from heaven down. It starts like this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We get the deity of Jesus right in the prologue. In the synoptic gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we get the story of Jesus told from the earth up. 
And we see people come to realize one step at a time who Jesus is. And that's how many people come to faith in Jesus today, realizing who he is one step at a time. I've entitled this presentation, More Than a Man, Did Jesus Say He Was God? If he did, how did he do it? And we're going to be taking an historical approach to the sayings and the events that we read in the Gospels today. And you're going to see how we can show that Jesus claimed to have divine authority, how he made divine claims. Here's where we're going with our time together. First, we'll talk about how historical Jesus investigations work. And then we'll talk about how Jesus claimed to have divine authority. We're going to look at two texts together, the healing of the paralytic in Mark chapter 2, and Jesus' Jewish examination in Mark 14. I like to call these the Mark and blasphemy accusation scenes. And then, well, finally, we're going to see how the resurrection validates Jesus' claims and how early Christians included Jesus in the very identity of God. So let's get started with how historical Jesus investigations work. Historians study evidence and make inferences. And there are rules that come into play here because when you talk about Jesus in highly skeptical environments, you need to understand that uh, critical scholars will read the Gospels, but then they'll want to try to fact-check the Bible. And they'll read the story and say, how do we know it really happened like that? Is there anything else that we can see uh, that would increase the probability that this kind of thing actually happened? Did it really happen that way? So there are rules of evidence that come into play, and these rules are called the criteria of authenticity. And what they do is they help us show how strong the evidence is for a certain saying, for an event that we read in the Gospels. And what this does in the minds of historians is it increases the probability that a certain saying goes back to the historical Jesus or that uh, an event really happened in the past. Because many people who see, uh, like those uh, 43% of people, many people who think like that see the Jesus of history as totally different from the Christ of faith. And they'll say things like, in John, Jesus is God, but in Mark, he's not God, that kind of thing. And so, how can we meet people where they're at? A historical approach is one way to do that. Corroboration is the name of the game. It's very different than how we normally think about the Bible in church. Historians use an inference to the best explanation approach. For example, critical scholars, people who don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God, um, even they can come to the table and look at the data, and there's actually a consensus that Jesus was believed to be divine very early on and in a Jewish context. So historians will ask, what caused that belief? Did that just come out of nowhere? Or did Jesus say anything or do anything that might have led to this belief? I was in an Uber one day and the uh, driver asked me about my work, I told him that I was a professor, and that I studied Jesus as a figure in ancient history. And that kind of got his attention. He said, you know, I'm not religious, but I like history. And so what turned into a 45-minute conversation all the way to the airport started with questions about Jesus being a miracle worker. He'd ask questions like, you know, weren't miracle workers just a dime a dozen back in the day? Was Jesus really any different than these Greco-Roman miracle workers or Jewish prophets that people thought did miracles? And what a great place to begin because one of the bedrock facts of the historical Jesus is that he was known as a miracle worker. Even people who don't believe that miracles are even possible, critical scholars who don't think miracles are possible will say that Jesus was known as a miracle worker. Well, that's a fact of history. So I'd like to take that as just one place to begin 
Because part of the historical data that tells us that Jesus was known as a miracle worker, part of that data also tells us that he was a unique kind of miracle worker. And what makes Jesus a unique kind of miracle worker actually points us to his divine claim, to his claim to possess divine authority. Jesus claimed to have divine authority. So let's begin with our first blasphemy accusation scene. The healing of the paralytic in Mark chapter 2. Consider this exhibit A as we build our case for Jesus' divine claim. Historians like to find the earliest story that they can about what somebody might have said or might have did, done. And so we are going to start with the earliest miracle story in the earliest gospel to be written, which is the gospel according to Mark. And even just on historical grounds, this story is worth investigating for a number of reasons. First, there is a tradition of Jesus, well, being a miracle worker, that's historical bedrock, but also being a healer, an exorcist, that he healed people and we have a tradition of him healing the lame. For example, like when John's disciples came to Jesus and they asked, are you the one who is to come or should we be waiting for somebody else? Jesus told them what? Go tell John what you hear and see. One of the things that Jesus mentioned in Matthew 11 was that the lame walk. And so there's this tradition of Jesus healing people and including healing the lame. There's a rule of evidence called multiple attestation of theme that comes into play here. Because we see this theme of miracles, of healings, of healing lame people. This is a mural that was discovered in a house from the early third century. It is the oldest depiction of one of Jesus' miracles. And it is the healing of the paralytic in Mark chapter 2. And you know this famous story in this scene, Jesus is teaching in a house. It is jam-packed, standing room only. And all of a sudden, little bits of this thatched roof start falling from the ceiling and everything's interrupted. People are looking up like, what is even going on right now? Because four men start lowering one of their friends on a mat in front of Jesus. I think of this kind of like a movie where the camera is getting these reaction shots. The man's looking at Jesus. Jesus is looking at him. Everyone's watching. The scribes are peeking over people's shoulders. What's Jesus going to say? What's Jesus going to say? Mark chapter 2, verse 5. He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. This is a key part of what makes Jesus a unique miracle worker. Jesus was a unique miracle worker because he claimed to forgive sins. And this saying is a highly evidenced data point. Even critical scholars who recognize, uh, even critical scholars who don't believe that the Bible is the word of God will recognize that there's strong evidence for this saying. There's another rule of evidence that applies called coherence. And that means that this matches up with another scene where Jesus said a similar thing. If you think about in Luke 7, Jesus said to the woman who anointed his feet, he said to her, your sins are forgiven. So it's not the only time that Jesus said something like this. So we have that uh, coherence, multiple attestation of theme and coherence. But this makes the core story itself more plausible historically as well. Because if you think about why would you have a saying that's preserved without a context, right? Why would you have that saying preserved if it didn't come from a true story from Jesus' life? If you saw someone with a t-shirt that said, may the force be with you on it, you probably recognize that line from the Star Wars franchise. It actually came from the very first movie that was released in 1977. 
But may the force be with you is kind of a meaningless statement outside that context. It has no, no meaning apart from the Star Wars universe. Why has it been preserved for 46 years? Precisely because it has a context. The same principle applies when we're talking about true stories in history. If we have a saying that's been preserved, son, your sins are forgiven, why would that just be preserved out of nowhere with no context? So this increases the probability that this core scene happened as well. There's a third rule called rejection and execution. And this basically says that if something helps us explain how it is that Jesus ended up on the cross, ended up before Pilate, that helps us um, explain that, then that becomes uh, something that we see is authentic as well. It increases the probability that this is likely authentic. So this applies to our very first blasphemy accusation scene because of the reaction that Jesus got from the scribes. Verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's a good question. It's a rhetorical question, and the answer is nobody. Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. See, the scribes were the theologians in the crowd. They understood the implication. To them, what Jesus was doing was usurping a divine prerogative. And to them, what Jesus was saying fit a cultural definition of blasphemy, which is disrespecting God by taking one of his prerogatives for yourself. That's exactly what they thought was going on here. So this fits the culture. But I sent a whole year studying just this scene. And one thing that I found is that there is no Greco-Roman miracle worker anywhere who ever said, son, your sins are forgiven, or anything like that. No Greco-Roman miracle worker ever claimed to forgive sins. There is no Jewish prophet who ever claimed to forgive sins in the Bible. Jewish prophets could pray for people, but they never claimed to forgive sins. Because in the minds of the Jewish people, forgiveness only came from God. And it was so out of the ordinary. And that's one reason why this saying was preserved. But it also raises the question of what kind of authority was Jesus claiming to have when he said, your sins are forgiven? Was it just some kind of human authority? Or were the scribes right? Was he really taking a divine prerogative for himself? Some scholars believe that Jesus didn't actually claim to be divine. For example, the atheist scholar Bart Ehrman has this theory that Jesus claimed only to possess a priestly kind of prerogative, but not a divine one. And this is one reason that people say that Jesus never claims to be anything more than just a man. But here's what they miss. There is no evidence anywhere that a Jewish priest ever said anything like your sins are forgiven. Jewish priests could be involved in atonement rituals. Jewish priests could pray for you. But they never said your sins are forgiven. There is no text anywhere that shows us a priest saying your sins are forgiven, even on the Day of Atonement. And so there is no evidence for this claim at all. So the scribal reaction, it fits the culture because to the Jewish people, only God could forgive sins. Jesus wasn't a priest in the temple. The man didn't have a sacrifice. There was no apparent repentance and they're not even in the temple. So how is this working right now? Jesus said your sins are forgiven based on his own authority. He didn't pray, he didn't even mention God. So Jesus' enemies heard this saying as a claim to have divine authority, not just a priestly human kind of authority. Then Jesus poses this little riddle to them, and immediately Jesus 
Perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? So what's the answer? Well, on the one hand, if you say walk and nothing happens, then everybody knows you're a total sham. So it might seem easier just to say the words, Your sins are forgiven. Why? Because nobody can tell if that even worked or not, right? The guy looks the same. Actually, he's still on the ground, so I should be like, the guy looks the same. (laughs) On the other hand, only God can forgive sins, and so it is harder to say your sins are forgiven, because only God can do that. People are still trying to figure out the riddle, and then we get to the healing miracle proper. Verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Now, on a historical level, it's important to pay attention to this saying of authority, because son of man is Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. He does this 69 times in the Synoptic Gospels. And so this is the way that Jesus talks. It's a theme that is multiply attested throughout the Gospels. So we have multiple attestation of theme again. Now, on one level, son of man is just a cultural way that people would say to refer to themselves. But on another level, the son of man, Jesus always makes it definite. He says, the son of man. The son of man is almost like a title that Jesus uses to point to his transcendence, to point to this idea that he's more than just a man. We're going to unpack more about what son of man means as we get to our second blasphemy accusation scene. So just... Tuck that away in the back of your minds right now. So we have another rule that applies called dissimilarity. Because it's not like the church would have made up a saying like this, because Jesus isn't called Son of Man anywhere else in the New Testament, not in the writings of Paul, only in the Gospels. And it's only on the lips of Jesus. One time it's someone else, but he's quoting Jesus. So why would this saying be written back into Jesus' mouth by the church? That's not how the church normally talks about Jesus as the Son of Man. I mean, how many worship songs do you know that calls Jesus the Son of Man? I can think maybe of one passing line. So Jesus implicitly claimed to be more than a man when he claimed to have divine authority on earth to forgive sins. This scene gives us an example of how implicit claims work in the Gospels. And we shouldn't confuse the existence of a claim with the directness of a claim. That's important. Let me say that again. We shouldn't confuse the existence of a claim with the directness of a claim. Like, just because someone doesn't say something directly doesn't mean there's no claim there. If I say something like, my wife and I live in Chicago, or just by wearing a wedding ring, I'm implicitly making the claim to be married. Just saying the words, I'm married, that's not the only way to do it. In the same way, Jesus didn't have to say, hi, I'm God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That's not the only way to make a, a claim like that. Jesus said things, and he did things that implied his divine authority, and it came through loud and clear in his culture, kind of like wearing a wedding ring. comes through loud and clear in our culture. But when Jesus healed the man, what he did was he gave them something that they could see so that they could believe in something that they couldn't see, that he actually does have authority on earth to forgive sins as the Son of Man. Now, how many of you believe that Jesus can actually forgive your sins? 
This is a critical part of coming to faith, isn't it? And so this is how people start to understand who Jesus is, just one step at a time. Someone who's just a good teacher can't do that, can't forgive your sins. Let's turn to our second blasphemy accusation scene. We'll call this Exhibit B as we build the historical case. Data from Jesus' Jewish examination in Mark 14 shows that Jesus claimed to have authority in heaven to judge sins. Here we get another scene where Jesus' authority becomes the issue in his clash with the Jewish leadership. And the criteria of rejection and execution supports this core scene as well. Even an atheist scholar like Bart Ehrman will say that a scene like this has to have occurred. Some kind of meeting has to have happened in order for Jesus to get in front of Pilate, even if he's not so sure about the details. But the core scene itself is historically plausible. I had the privilege of being mentored by Daryl Bach at Dallas Theological Seminary, was there for 10 years, and one thing he did was take a whole decade to work in the Jesus Group at the Institute of Biblical Research. And what they did was identify 12 key events in the life of the historical Jesus that were so strongly evidenced historically that you could show that the core event was a historical fact, even just on critical historical grounds. And this scene, the Jewish examination of Jesus, was one of the scenes that they identified. This is Christ before Caiaphas by a 13th century Italian painter named Duccio de Buonasegna. I love that painting, but I had to practice saying the guy's name a bunch. Duccio de Buonasegna. You think about it as a grand jury type investigation, okay? The council is gathered to find evidence against Jesus, something they can take to Pilate to seek the death penalty. And a key part of this scene is when the high priest asks Jesus directly, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now there's evidence for the authenticity of this exchange, even just in the way the exchange has been preserved, in the words that they use. Because son of the blessed is not a Christian way that people talk about Jesus. So it fits the culture. And we have the principle of dissimilarity again. And saying son of the blessed, again, there's no worship songs to Jesus as son of the blessed. It's not something that uh, the church would have made up and then put into this scene. But he's like, just tell us straight, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of God? Now, let's not miss that there is a royal dimension to all of this because they're setting Jesus up for a political charge that they can take to Pilate. This is so powerful. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Again, Jesus is using the term Son of Man, the Son of Man, his favorite way to talk about himself, the Son of Man. And when Jesus says power here, he's showing respect for the divine name, just like when the uh, high priest said, Son of the Blessed. It's a Jewish way to respect God's name without saying it. Jesus is meeting respect with respect. So it's a very Jewish kind of exchange that's going on here. And that's dissimilar from how the church speaks as well. So we have dissimilarity with the power. But Jesus says, yes, I'm the Messiah. But he says more than just, yes, I'm the Messiah. Jesus raises the bar and makes highly exalted claims about himself. Because what he is doing here is he is combining imagery from Daniel 7 and Psalm 110. And it's multiply attested that Jesus had referred to these texts before. It's not the first time Jesus mentioned these texts, brought them up. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man is a human being, 
but he has transcendent-like qualities. He rides the clouds. His kingdom will be unstoppable, and everybody's going to worship him. That's what the vision is about. In Psalm 110, many Jews saw the one seated at the right hand of God, at the right hand of God, as the ultimate eschatological king that they were all waiting for. And no one had the authority to just roll up to God's throne and have a seat like that, not even an angel. In fact, it was debated in the culture if anyone could sit at God's right hand or sit in God's presence. And it was a 50-50 split. Some people said, no, there's no way. Others said, well, hold up, maybe Adam or Abel or Enoch could have a role in the judgment, maybe if God invited them to do so. Maybe Abraham or Moses or David could sit there if God invited them to do so. But guess what? In their lifetimes, none of these luminaries went around telling people that they were going to judge the world. None of them predicted that they were going to be seated at the right hand of God. So Jesus' response to the high priest, to Caiaphas, is very novel. It's, it's outstandingly novel. This is one reason why it was preserved. You know who else some people thought had the right to sit next to God like that? The Messiah. So when Jesus combines sitting at the right hand of God and coming on the clouds, he's pointing to transcendence. He's pointing to this idea that he's more than a man. And he's basically saying, yes, I'm the Messiah, but not a human Messiah like you're thinking of, not a merely human Messiah, because God is going to vindicate me. And one day there is going to be another trial one day, and you guys won't be judging me at that one. You could hear the offense that Caiaphas felt. Because he's like, hang on, what's like, we are God's chosen representatives on earth. Who are you? You're going to judge us? How dare you? And we see the response. Verse 63, the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Now, just claiming to be the Messiah wasn't blasphemy. But what Jesus said went way beyond claiming to just be a human king. Jesus implicitly claimed to be divine when he claimed to have divine authority in heaven to judge sins. He claimed to be more than a man when he claimed to have divine authority on earth to judge sins, and then here, divine authority in heaven to judge sins. Divine authority on earth to forgive sins and divine authority in heaven to judge sins. So when you take the data from both of these scenes, you put them together, you get more clarity on how Jesus claimed to be divine. He did it through a combination of his words and his deeds. They worked together, and it came through loud and clear in his culture. And we are making an inference to the best explanation based on both of these scenes, exhibits A and B. In scene number one, the healing of the paralytic, Jesus claims to have divine authority on earth to forgive sins. That's a divine claim. That's not just a priestly human claim. In the second scene, Mark 14, Jesus claims to have divine authority in heaven to judge sins. Again, that's not just a human claim. That's a divine claim. Now watch this. If you have authority on earth to forgive sins and in heaven to judge sins, that is authority in heaven and on earth. You have authority in heaven and on earth. That means authority over all of reality. Jesus is claiming to have authority over all of reality. And forgiveness and judgment are just two sides of the same coin because all sin is ultimately an offense against God. And so ultimately, only God can forgive. And only God has the right to judge. 
because as the moral lawgiver, his jurisdiction is in fact the universe that he created. So the theory that Jesus only claimed to have a kind of human priestly authority doesn't fit all of the historical data. Why would anyone think that Jesus was a blasphemer if all he did was claim to have the authority of a, a human priest? A lot of people like to look at what did Jesus' followers think about him. In my study, in my doctoral dissertation, I wanted to look at what did Jesus' enemies think when they heard what he said. This is what Jesus' enemies thought. But Mark is telling us the same thing that John is telling us. People who want to try to pit the Gospels against each other say they're telling us two different things. But as we look more uh, in detail, we can see that Mark is telling us the same thing as John is telling us. That Jesus is who he claims to be. He claims to be divine, and he does the things that God does. This is way different than how some people thought that Caesar Augustus or Alexander the Great might have been divine in some sense. You know, they could perhaps be lower deities in large pantheon, but no one thought that Caesar Augustus had authority over all of reality. And just look at all these different areas where Mark shows us that Jesus has authority. Jesus has authority over nature. He commands the wind and stills the storm. And Psalm 107 tells us that that's what God does. Jesus has authority over demons. He was known as an exorcist. That's another bedrock fact of the historical Jesus. He was known as an exorcist, and Mark is telling us that he exercised a legion of demons from a man. He even talks about binding Satan. What man can bind Satan? Jesus has authority over disease. He heals so many people. For example, he healed a woman with a bleeding hemorrhage. Jesus even has authority over death itself. Now, if you think in the Old Testament, prophets like Elijah, they could pray to God to uh, heal or to raise a dead girl, and then God could raise that little girl from the dead. But when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter, he didn't mention God. He didn't even pray. He just raised her based on his own authority. So Jesus has authority over nature, over demons, disease, and death. Who does that in all these different areas? This is just a glimpse of what authority in heaven and on earth looks like, authority over all of reality. So in both of our blasphemy accusation scenes, Jesus claims to be divine, and he points to his vindication. And the ultimate sign of his vindication is his resurrection. I'll never forget when that woman came up to me and grabbed my Bible and said, according to this, Jesus never claimed to be God. We got to talking about how the Bible portrays Jesus in the Gospels. She wasn't so sure that the Gospels were giving us historical facts, and so we took the historical approach and began to talk about the sayings of Jesus and his response to the high priest. But eventually, our conversation turned to the resurrection because she says, just because someone says they're divine doesn't make it true. Fair enough, but it's actually the resurrection that validates Jesus' claims. And so we talked about the resurrection, but she had heard that the resurrection was just a story that somehow emerged many, many decades later, 30, 40, 50, 60 years down the line, and that there was no evidence of this story before the Gospels were written. What would you say in that situation? One suggestion is to think about the Apostle Paul. That's what came to my mind, and we started to talk about the Apostle Paul, because virtually every critical scholar will recognize that Paul's conversion was an historical event. 
that Paul at one time was Saul of Tarsus, chief persecutor of the Christian message. What was that message? The resurrection of Jesus. He had to know what that message was to say, that's wrong. I'm going to persecute that. And two years after the cross, he decided to follow Jesus and preach the very message that he was persecuting because he says he had an experience with the risen Jesus. And he didn't miss Jesus. He wasn't in a position to hallucinate seeing Jesus or hearing him. But what we see is before that, the resurrection teaching was around because he had to know that it was going around. He had to believe it was false and want to persecute it. But he also had to have already heard the resurrection preaching to understand what he was seeing on the Damascus Road. And so this was not a story that emerged decades and decades later. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, he quotes an ancient creed that was around at this time when he was persecuting Christians. And this creed says that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, this woman had to go, but she ended it like this. She said, I got to go, but you know what? I wasn't there. I don't know what happened. But I'll tell you this. Something happened. Something happened. And I find that a lot of our skeptical friends end up in this situation when they're confronted with the historical evidence for Jesus' divine claims for the resurrection. Because there really is no naturalistic explanation that's better than the resurrection for Jesus' Uh, crucifixion, his disciples' belief that they saw him alive after he was crucified, the conversion of the church persecutor Paul, the empty tomb, these are all highly evidenced historical facts. And so the resurrection is the best explanation for these facts. But the thing is, our skeptical friends aren't just reacting to historical data as data. What they're reacting to is the theological implication of these historical facts. Because if Jesus really rose from the dead, if he really claimed to be divine and then rose from the dead to prove it, well then Jesus is who he claimed to be. And now there's, there's a personal dimension to that, right? What are you gonna do with that? There's a claim on your life there. If the resurrection is true, Jesus is who he claimed to be, and it is the claims of Jesus that fill the resurrection with theological meaning. It's the claims of Jesus that fill the resurrection with theological meaning. That's why I love talking about the claims of Jesus before discussing the resurrection. But Christians believe that the resurrection validated Jesus' claims to be divine. I'll give you a couple examples. Guess who gave the very first apologetics presentation in the history of the church? It was the Apostle Peter on Pentecost Sunday in Acts chapter 2. That was a very Jewish kind of apologetic. He starts out quoting the Old Testament. He quotes the prophet Joel, and he says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he connects the resurrection to Jesus being seated at the right hand of God, and then he calls Jesus Lord. Look at how he ends that sermon in Acts chapter 2. He says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That is Psalm 110, verse 1, the exact same text that Jesus was alluding to in front of the high priest. And he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the very first apologetic for Jesus as Lord and Messiah. And part of what he's saying is that 
What was metaphorical about that messianic prophecy in Psalm 110 became literal when Jesus literally ascended to the right hand of God. David never did that. No Jewish king ever did that, but Jesus did. And that's why he's worthy to be called Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Christ means the Messiah, but Peter's saying Jesus isn't just a human Messiah like most people were expecting. He's the ultimate eschatological king from Psalm 110, that messianic prophecy. And it's amazing to see how the early Christians used the word Lord to include Jesus in the very identity of the God of Israel. Here's another example. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 2 that God the Father exalted Jesus so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, what few people realize is that this is a reference to one of the strongest monotheistic texts in the entire Old Testament in Isaiah 45, where God says he's the only Savior. And he says, turn to me and be saved. Isaiah 45, verse 18. I am the Lord and there is no other. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. And the chapter ends by saying that it is the Lord who justifies people. Now this word Lord, capital L-O-R-D in your Old Testament, is a reference to the divine name. Paul is saying Jesus isn't just a human Lord. He's the Lord who has divine authority in heaven and on earth over all of reality. This is how the early Christians included Jesus in the very identity of the God of Israel. So here's what you need to know this morning. Jesus said he was God through a combination of his words and his deeds. They worked together. Jesus claimed to be divine when he claimed to possess divine authority. But here's where this gets personal. Because every single one of us has to come face to face with the divine claims of Jesus. As C.S. Lewis once said, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he really is Lord. And each of us have to answer for ourselves the same exact question that Jesus once asked Peter. Who do you say that I am? The Gospel of Mark is telling us the same thing as the Gospel of John. Jesus is who he claimed to be. And this isn't just a story that we can tell from heaven down. We can walk people through that story from the earth up and share reasons to believe that Jesus is more than a man. He's God Almighty. Thank you. Now, one more thing. If you uh, go to my website, apologeticsguy.com slash more than a man, you can download the notes from this presentation, which, there we go. Uh, you can download the notes from this presentation if you would like to, and when we have the video up, it'll be there as well. Thanks again, you guys, so much. God bless you.